Why did Jesus come to die? That's the question we're going to answer today. Why did Jesus come to die? If we lose the why of anything, the purpose disappears. I mean, in absolutely any environment or anything, if it has no purpose, it has no longevity, it has no meaning, it has no significance, it really has nothing. It becomes burdensome. That's the reason why. If you go to Europe, you will find churches is a burden to most people. And the reason why churches are a burden to people is because there is no purpose in it. You can't sell an item that has no purpose. Razors are sold because they serve a purpose. Lawnmowers are sold because they serve a purpose. Everything, cars are sold because they serve a purpose. Everything you buy serves a purpose. But when it comes to Christ, when we lose the purpose as to why He came, we will lose our interest in Him altogether. We'll have no need for sacrifice. We'll have no need for faithfulness. We'll have no need for commitment. We'll have no need to spend our time here on a Sunday morning. But we celebrate Palm Sunday because Palm Sunday speaks of His willingness to come and die as the Lamb of God. Nobody had to twist his arm. Nobody had to force him. He gave his life. Of course he had to give his life. If he didn't give his life, he would have been a martyr. If he didn't give his life, then he wouldn't have been a gift to you and I. But Jesus came willingly and gave his life. The question we're asking today and answering is, why did he come to die? And I'm going to give you six reasons as to why. There are many but here are six basic reasons most essential for us to know as to why He came to die. The first is to bring us to God. That's why He came. That's why He went into Jerusalem. And that's why He gave His life on the cross. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. That's why He came. As a matter of fact, every single thing God does is to bring you to Himself. Everything. I tell the Bible students that you know that you've had a great Bible study if it makes you want to sing to Him. If you don't feel like shouting, Abba, Father, if you don't feel like glorifying His name, you didn't really have a good Bible study. Everything God does, everything God gives us is to bring us to Himself. John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in this verse, we have two things. We have a way and we have a destination. Jesus is that way. But the Father is your destination. So even Jesus coming, He came to bring us to God. Secondly, why did Jesus come to die? He came to die in order to divide truth from lies. And so demolish all deception. You see, the devil has this one thing, and that is called deception. But Jesus came to take deception away from him 
by flipping the light switch, putting the light on, and now you can see things as they are. He came to divide truth from lies and so demolish deception. As a matter of fact, Jesus divides absolutely anything and everything He touches. In Genesis 1 verse 4, He divided the light from the darkness. In Genesis 1 verse 6, He divided the, wor the water on the earth from the water in the sky. In Exodus 14 21, He divided the Red Sea. In Matthew 25, He divides the goats from the sheep. In Matthew 13, He divides the tares from the wheat. Jesus divides the faithful from the unfaithful. He divides truth from lies and from deception. In Luke 12, verse 51 and 53, He divides people and their families. In Matthew 27, verse 51, Jesus splits the temple veil in half. And as you read further, you'll see He shakes the earth and splits rocks into two. Jesus divides the Old Testament from the New Testament. He divides our timeline from A.C., from B.C. to A.C. In Revelation 19, verse 11, Jesus splits the heavens open as He comes back. And in Zechariah 14, 11, when He returns again, He will split the mountain of olives or the Mount of Olives in two as He stands on it. I don't know if you've ever noticed, when you have Thanksgiving dinners and the whole family's arrived, all you have to do is bring up Jesus and suddenly there are two sides. <laughs> Isn't it? All you need to do when you talk about politics, you bring in Jesus, boom, everybody disagrees. Jesus does not bring unity. He actually brings division. He comes to unite us with God, but divide us from the world. In Luke 17, 51, he says exactly that. He says, do you think I have come to bring peace to earth? No. I have come to divide people against each other. John 18, 37 says, Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I'm a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify of the truth. You cannot speak the truth without dividing it from lies. Jesus divides everything all the time. So while they were celebrating their plans on Palm Sunday or that Sunday prior to Resurrection Sunday, while they were celebrating their plans that they had for Jesus, Jesus, on the other hand, was fulfilling the redemptive plan God had for Him. They celebrated what they thought the plan was, but He was fulfilling God's plan for Him. You see, the crowd and Jesus were not there for the same reason. Being oppressed by Roman authorities, the crowd expected Jesus to offer them freedom from a life of hardship. That's what they were expecting. But instead, He came to offer them freedom from slavery to sin. They were looking at politics. He was looking at their sin. And we still deal with the pro this same problem today. There was a divide. There was a divided expectation. His purpose was spiritual. Their purpose was political and social. Their goal for Jesus was political freedom while Christ's goal for them was reconciliation to the Father. He came to unite us to the Father. You see, while they had a temporal goal in mind, He had an eternal spiritual goal in mind. 
So even though people, um, you know, people's political expectations for Jesus ran really high, we see no effort on Jesus' part to correct Pilate's political policies. Even though he had the opportunity to do so, he never did. We see no effort on Jesus' part to overthrow or even influence Herod's political policies. Jesus never demanded social justice reform in any way from Herod or from Pilate. He came to deal with a sin of people, the very sin that separated them from the Father. So our walkaway point here is do not dismiss the purpose of why Jesus came to die. If you throw away the purpose, if you forget the purpose, if you don't emphasize the purpose, it loses its value. People start talking about Jesus came to die so we can be, so we can be united. No, He didn't. He came to die so we can be divided, but united to God the Father instead. Let's be honest about it now. Don't dive into that thing. It's, it's humanistic at its root. He didn't come to die for peace between nations. He came to die so there could be peace between you and the Father, reconciliation. Remember, He is the way, but there is a destination, and it is the Father. Do not think that, don't, don't look at Jesus the way they looked at Jesus on Palm Sunday. If you view Him the same way they viewed Him, you're missing Christ. So in the midst of a broken and dying world, Christ came to give them freedom from sin, freedom from death, freedom from separation from the Father. He came to reconcile them to the Father. He came to reveal the truth. And so, obliterate deception. This was His purpose. Number two, number three, no, number three. Number one was that He came to bring us to God. Number two is that He came to divide lies from the truth or truth from the lies. Number three is Jesus came to die in order to absorb the wrath of God against your and my sin. Why does God take such extreme measures against sin? It's almost like when somebody sins against you in a trivial way, you think like, well, you know what, I'll just flick you and it'll all be over. But no, God wants to throw the guy in hell. <laughs> what in the world? Why is God so extreme in his response to sin? Why doesn't he just slap you on the hand and say, stop it, don't do it again? No, he goes, unless you, unless you repent and put your faith in Christ, if your sin that you just committed isn't paid in Christ, it'll be paid in hell forever. It's paid in Christ or it's paid in hell, but your sin will be paid for. Why is God so extreme over sins that we at times seem to feel as trivial? It's not so serious. Well, let me start by answering this in saying that because He is holy, He cannot be at peace with sin, no matter how trivial, no matter how small, because He couldn't be at peace with sin and be good at the same time. He cannot, prom he cannot compromise with evil and be righteous both at the same time. The moment he compromises with evil, he is no longer righteous. The, no the, the, the moment he becomes at peace with sin, no matter how trivial, he is no longer holy or good. You see, he cannot remain neutral in the midst of transgressions and be just. 
That's why. You know, people that never have an opinion about nothing, don't trust them. They are not just. Does this make sense to you? People that cannot draw lines, you don't know where they stand? How can you trust them? You can't because they're trying to play both sides. And that is how ministers today, especially here in the West, they come up with a third way. Everything is a third way. Well, we don't believe, we don't believe in same-sex marriage, but we also don't believe it's right to keep people from loving each other. So we take a third way. We just believe in the love of God. That's what they teach. Can't draw lines, can't be just. He cannot keep silent in the face of iniquity and be holy at the same time. He cannot remain indifferent to the, to the pres in, in the presence of abuse and be loving at the same time. It's like he's sitting in the corner of a house. Somebody's abusing, a, he's a child, and he goes like, well, you know, I just want to be forgiving. That wouldn't make God loving. He cannot tolerate wicked and be a just judge both at the same time. He cannot leave the scales of justice unbalanced and be righteous. So we ask the question, why does God take such extreme measures against the sin that we sometimes think is trivial? Because He's holy, because He's just, because He's righteous. Here's the problem. When we look at sin, we think very little of it. But you don't realize that when you trivialize sin, you're trivializing the sacrifice, the Christ that came to pay for the sin. If you say this sin is trivial, well, then his price he paid for it is trivial also. You are diminishing the price you paid you are diminishing the work of Christ. You're trivializing the cross. When somebody sins, they sin against God. And the offense is only as severe as the one you sinned against. I always give this example to make it simple. Let's say, for instance, Basui and I, uh, let's say, for instance, we're playing a board game or we're playing basketball or we're playing football or soccer. Actually, we played soccer. I remember now when we started doing sports out here in Schaumburg on Sunday afternoons. We were playing soccer. Let's say, for instance, we got in each other's face. And I shouted, Basui, Basui, next time, next time you kick me on the shins, I'm going to slap you through the face. I'm going to punch you in the face. And all the guys around say, I oh, like, calm down, calm down, all right? It's just a game. It's just a game. All right. All right. It's fine. But let's change that scenario. And let's make, create a context where I make the exact same threat, but not to Basui. Let's say, for instance, we're in this room, and the President of the United States walks in. I walk up to him. And I give him the exact same threat. I'm going to punch you in the face. What will happen? What will happen? I will, <laughs> what will happen is I will get tackled by the Secret Service. And they will arrest me and they will put me away. Because of who I threatened. The crime isn't the same. When I commit a crime against a sinful human, that's one thing. But guess what? 
if I violate the holiness of God by committing that crime, I have now committed that crime against God Himself. And when I commit a crime against God, that's in a complete different category. And if you sin against God, there's only one price to pay, and it's death. We do not see sin for what it is. We trivialize sin. Why do you think people aren't running to God? Why are people not running to the cross? Because they don't think they have sin. And they didn't th if they think they have sin, they don't think their sin is all that significant. They think it's trivial. But they don't realize that their sin wasn't against somebody else. Their sin was against a holy, perfect God. Who In the Old Testament, you saw somebody would touch the ark and they would die. You can't even see God and live, let alone sin against Him and live. Watch this quick two-minute video on a definition of sin. Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed. The commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. You see, a sin against another human is, in fact, a sin against God. You cannot steal my $5 and think that you've only hurt me. No, you have violated God's character. You have violated God's holiness. You have misrepresented who God has made you to be. You are an image bearer of God. And for you to steal my $5 is for you to misrepresent God. And that is a sin against Him. That's why after you have given the $5 back, you have to go and repent before Him for misrepresenting Him. And when we see sin as listed here, God not honored, God not pursued, His presence not valued, 
when we see sin for what it is, the most moral person you know will suddenly be desperate for Jesus to save him from God's wrath. Yes, Jesus saves you from God, from God's wrath. However, the good news for those in Christ is this. Are you ready? 1 Thessalonians 5.9, it says, For God has not destined us for wrath. God has not destined us for His own wrath because He sent Jesus Christ. He says, But to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus. In John 3.36 it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It is your faith in Jesus Christ by grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone are you saved. Jesus came into Jerusalem as the Lamb of God to be slaughtered by men and to be crushed by God. Why? So that God's wrath against your and my sins may be absorbed right there on the cross and may be satisfied by the cross that there's no more wrath left for you. No, there is no purgatory. There is no something you need to do in order to complete what Christ has already done. His work is complete. That is why we proclaim, God is good to me. He's not good to you because you got a parking spot right on the front door of the mall. He's good to you because He absorbed every bit of God's wrath against your sin at the cross. That's why He came. You see, this is why you can say, God is merciful to me. God is merciful to me. You know somebody is saved when they beg God for mercy, not when they demand His grace. You can't demand something that you cannot deserve and that you did not earn. This is why you can shout, I have hope. As Christians, we have hope in a world that's burning down. It's fine. It's fine because we have a world we're looking towards and we're excited about it. This is why you can declare, God loves me. You know, our walkaway point here is, let me continue, no matter what your temporal circumstances may be, no matter what you are going through or what you are facing, why are you not living like you have an eternal hope? Why are we not living like we have this eternal hope? Declare daily, God loves me, and the proof of it is the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago. That is proof that God loves me. Not my feelings. Not the fact that I got this parking spot at the front, of the front door of the mall. That's not any proof of God's love for me. Not because I got a raise. Not because I was able to pay my bills. Not because... No, God loves me. Why? Because of the cross. It's almost like we brats sometimes, isn't it? And I don't mean to say you are. Okay, I'm just saying. It's that Christianity in general... <laughs> Oh my gosh, don't point to your wife while I'm talking about this. <laughs> point to your husband. <laughs> it's almost like we brats, right? <laughs> what we do is we look at the cross, we see the price he paid, and then we wonder why he's loving us, why he's not loving us enough to give us a new car. Well, is God, does God love me or not? Why am I struggling? Are you kidding me? Look at the price he paid. So you have to declare daily, God loves me. And the proof of His love for me is that cross. Number four, why did Jesus come to die? Why did Jesus come to die? To display God's love for us. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world, in other words, God, for God in this way 
loved the world, which way? That He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him, originally stated that all the believing ones should not perish but have eternal life. Let me read it to you again. For God in this way loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that all the believing ones, all those who believe, all those who have brand new hearts, all those who have hearts of flesh that can have faith in God, should not perish but have what? Eternal life. Why did we get this? Because He so loved. He loved us in this way. You see, no man needs to be told that God loves him. It is, it, it's so tiresome. It is so tiresome to keep flipping through the channels. Well, really, through YouTube. I don't know. You don't flip through YouTube this way, but you know what I meant, you know. From sermon after sermon after sermon, I'm like, God loves you. If only you could believe that God loves you. If only you could believe it. It's like telling my son, your dad loves you. Why, need, why do I need somebody else to tell my son that I love him? He knows I love him because of the relationship that we are in. He's convincing other people that I love him. <laughs> right? Why do you need me to tell you that God loves you if, in fact, you have a revelation of what happened 2,000 years ago on a cross? Isn't that sufficient for you to realize that he loves you? The reason people have to be convinced that God loves them is because they don't have a revelation of the cross. That's why. Are you with me? All that is needed is a clear understanding of the gospel. And your question about whether God loves you or not is solved. Is solved. But if we lose the gospel, then we have to, we have to convince people. Talk them into the fact that, yeah, God loves you. God really does love you. Think about all the good things He's done for you. He's given you a parking spot in the front door of the mall. Well, the next week when He doesn't, I don't think he loves me anymore. That's what that message does. That's what that message does. Oh, man, God loves me. God loves me. Somebody, somebody showed up on my front door and handed me a bag with $1,000 when I needed it the most. God loves me. God loves me. What happens next month when you don't get that $1,000? Well, God, why don't you love me anymore? No, no, no. If you don't get the gospel, you will never believe that God loves you. Life is too hard for you to believe that God loves you. Why did Jesus come to die? Number five, to deliver us from troubled hearts. To deliver us from troubled hearts. There is only one way to be delivered from a troubled heart, and that is by receiving a promise of hope for the future. I don't care what situation you're in. It might be a marital issue. It might be a financial issue. It might be a relational issue. I don't care what the trouble is, if you have a promise, if you have a promise of a future hope for your marriage, for your relationship, for your finance, your, your heart no longer is burdened. John 14, verse 1 and 3, Jesus did exactly that. Watch this. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled, but instead of allowing your hearts to be troubled, do what? Believe God. <laughs> also believe me. Instead of being burdened by troubles, believe. In other words, when I'm burdened by troubles, it is because I'm not believing in God and in Jesus and in the promise that He gave me of a hopeful future. 
You see, he says right here, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, in my father's house are many dwelling places. There he goes. He just gave you a future promise of hope. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So here Jesus is doing two things. Number one, first he clarifies that for those who believe in him, there is this promise. And secondly, the promise is an eternal home with him. So don't let your hearts be heavy. Do not let your hearts be heavy. Why don't we live like people that have hope? Why do we walk around with heavy hearts? When in fact, we have received such great good news. You see here, Jesus takes the listener's mind off of the temporal troubled circumstances by replacing their troubled minds with a mind filled with eternal security and, and, and comfort, reconciled to the Father. And I'm saying that to you today. In order to have comfort now in this life, I will have to place my mind on the eternal life to come. The most enthusiastic people are people who are eternally minded. But for those people who cannot look up to the snake on Moses' staff, they can only look to their wounds, they will die without hope. Jesus was implying here, the worst that can ever happen to you is in fact the best thing that could ever happen to you. <laughs> you know, people have been arrested more than 20 times for having services. Uh, we haven't come close to that. We haven't come close to any of that. But, um, you know, our, mind, our minds are so caught up with our troubles when in fact, if you want to compare it to the rest of the world, we have not. And let's say, for instance, the worst possible thing that could ever happen to you, somebody takes your life, could also be the best possible thing that's ever happened to you. Because in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. So the question is, what are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? Number six, why did Jesus come? And we're finishing with this. Why did He come to die? to take away our condemnation, to take away our condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, Christ came so that He could become our punishment, the very punishment that we do not now have to bear. And as sure as Christ died, are we sure that we cannot be condemned? His death, uh, we'll talk more about it next week. His death is in fact proof that there's no condemnation for you. His resurrection is proof of your justification. You stand before God just as if you had never sinned. Why? Because Jesus rose. You can stand before God and never be condemned. Why? Because He died. So our conclusion here today is this, that Jesus came to die to bring us to God 
to divide truth from lies, and so demolish deception. He came to absorb the wrath of God against our sin. He came to show us how much God loves us. He came to deliver us from troubled hearts by giving us a promise of a future hope. And then he came to take away all condemnation. Now this, folks, is good news. Amen? Amen. Did you get something out of the word? Amen.